Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. All right, so today is uh, we're gonna we do episode seven and clinical commentary on the shoulder, um, and we do have some other things to talk about, but we won't go into excruciating detail. Um, I was just speaking to Dr. Munoz about the current environment at the part-time institution that I attend. <laughs> <laughs> part-time situation. Uh, it, it's interesting to me because again, I follow a lot of le- quote physical therapy leaders online, social media, and Eric and I always try to maintain contact and relationships with people who we feel are leading the industry. As we were speaking to a colleague last week who who's an incredible clinician, and he's he's one of those people who, who uh, are kind of leading our profession in a positive way, and it's a little bit of a conundrum for me because uh, a couple days a week I'm, I'm subject to the opposite where... I'm surrounded by people who aren't leading the profession, and, and I see the other side of it. And unfortunately, those people are the norm for physical therapy, and we've talked about it before. One major thing that keeps kind of uh, bothering me and um, really, I don't know what the word is to say it politically, but <laughs> it's, it's bad. It's, it's, it's no, it's no way to, there's no way. I don't think there's way. We can't really sugarcoat it. Initially, no. I... Initially, Lee and I discussed this as a topic, and I wanted to put a positive spin on this, but I don't. I don't think there's much of a pot. You can't really. No. The only positive spin is um, we should know that this is wrong. Um, no. I'll let Lee discuss it, but it's how we speak to patients, mm-hmm. and beyond the intricacies of that, just what not to. I mean, when a PT is being combative with their patient, so their patient. Uh, maybe comes in late, <laughs> maybe expresses um, the fact that they may not be getting better, and the PT may react you know, to either protect themselves. I, I don't even know the reasoning. I don't want to go mm-hmm. into the reasoning, but combative nature with their patients. So mm-hmm. kind of putting the blame on the patient. What did you do? What, oh, yeah, you know, what did you do? Why you, You're much worse today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that I mean that's a, that's one other thing that we didn't we were talking right before we started the podcast. So the this and I've seen it quite a bit where a, a PT will be excuse me what would be treating this patient. They might have a steady improvement for some time, and then all of a sudden they come in like maybe after a weekend and they're worse. And instead of the PT listening to the person, they repeat asking them. Well, what did you do? What did you do? And you'll you'll usually see like uh like why are you asking me this question? And they're the the physical therapist is very insecure. The physical therapist is a little bit more aggressive and combative 
in saying this, and I'm, this is what I'm witnessing, and I see it all the time from many physical therapists, and they're trying to prove to this person that they did something to themselves, which just feeds on to this. Uh, it's almost like cat- catastrophizing because if if they if that patient if if they if that PT succeeds in what they're doing and proves to the patient that 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 they did something to make things worse, then they're going to feel out of control even more. So that means that, oh, my God, like, oh, I I went for a walk more than two blocks and I did something to myself. I made my condition worse. Well, that's not really helpful. A a more uh, adequate way of handling that, if they've gotten worse, just ask them, okay, just tell me about your weekend or tell me about the past couple of days. Did you do anything out of the ordinary? Okay, if you didn't, then let's continue on. We'll reassess everything and we'll go from there. It shouldn't be some sort of battle of wills. Like, that's not therapy like a lot of physical therapists approach this as some sort of battle with the patient it's not a battle you're there to assist them you're there to catalyze guide guide any sort of success that that patient can produce on their own they're not there to battle you and say like i'm right no i'm right no i'm right you're right Uh, that's not the purpose of it you know that never ends up well right uh, so your your job as a health professional is use your skills as someone who is like in our field, the orthopedic knowledge, definitely in the biopsychosocial realm where you can educate them on pain science, you can educate them on all the things that would cause uh, a pain response or a danger response. So these are the things that could be helpful, not trying to hinder someone by blaming them on Im- their, how they've made themselves worse. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I've luckily I've, ha- I've had good teachers and they've never allowed that behavior to go forward with me. And I also align myself with really intelligent colleagues and people who try to better themselves every day. Like Eric and I talk about all the time, we're smart enough to know that we're dumb. Right. We know we're that limitations and yeah, we we know there's so much more information out there. And you know what? Um, <clears throat> the, back to the battle of the wills. I mean, that's a great way. Guy, Thinking of the pain science realm, mm. uh, it's a great way to get someone's sympath- sympathetic nervous system ramped up because yeah. you're literally picking a fight. You know, maybe it's an intellectual battle, or maybe it's just a battle, like you just said, a battle of the will. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I um, discussing it with Lee um, as I was in a very similar situation at a very similar part-time gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I would fall into this realm of being surrounded by certain individuals that were somewhat combative with their patients. Um, and it's just not a good environment because mm. um, it's infectious. You know, um, you go back to the lunchroom and you start discussing uh, potential, have potential, pro- what we would consider, quote, problem patients. And, and the truth is, is it's not a problem patient. It's a, a person in need, you know. Now, that that being said, you know, if a person, if a patient kind of crosses a line where there's some kind of respect thing, right. we're not discussing that right now. We're discussing... That's very different. Yeah, it's a very different situation. We're talking about a, a person that's maybe not getting better. Maybe it's a little late. Maybe it's very late. Whatever it is, it's just we're not in a position as a physical therapist to start to be in a combative tone with patients. So right. you got to dig deep, you know, to all the newer therapists out there mm. you got to dig deep settle down listen to the person and see you know what what how do you 
How are you going to mitigate the situation? How are you going to get your point across without being offensive? And, um, and yeah, and if someone that does have a lot of experience, you know, kind of reflect on the dozens, thousands, hundred thousand people you've you've seen, mm-hmm. and say, hey, you know, here's another person that you know their their issue may be translating into other parts of their life, but. Combative PTs should not be in the PT. Shouldn't be in the practice, right? And uh, Eric said it very well. I mean, this is if you are new to the profession or looking to get in the profession, this is one of the biggest challenges. I would say the norm is how this patient was presenting, or any patient for that matter, for this physical therapist is if they're not getting better, if they're not happy with their progress so far. There, this is the norm, meaning that no one's. I shouldn't say no one. An extremely small percentage. A patient will come in and be like, oh, wow, I've gotten significantly better after a couple of treatments, and you continue to guide them and, yeah. and with all the treatment. But the majority of them are going to be like, well, this is not going as I planned because a lot, like we talked about many times before in other podcasts, is a lot of people don't understand the recovery process. They don't understand what, understand what physical therapy is, what we could do for people, things like that. So that should be understood. And 100%, this is another thing I think if this person was sat down with duct tape on the mouth, <laughs> they would understand, just let them know that this is not <coughs> about you. This is not about right. the physical therapist. This is 100% not about the physical therapist. Right. But a lot of people, a lot of physical therapists think that way. All of them are constantly saying, this is taken away from my lunch. This is taken away from my end of the day. I came in at this time and I've done this so much work. Well, guess what? That's your job. I mean, this is, this is what we have to do. We have to treat patients. They're usually not the best informed. They're usually in pain. They're usually emotionally distraught. And we have to mitigate these things. And that's a huge challenge. And if you're not up for it, then like we've said before, find another profession. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, no. It doesn't, it doesn't do anybody good to become combative with this person. So what? They came in late. You're going to sit there and berate them because they came in late. You have a conversation with them. The first thing you say to them, I'm happy you're here. I'm happy to, yeah, yeah. to see you. Like, yeah. this is great. You're here in enough time that we can have a conversation. Great. Now, we're again, like Eric said, we're not talking about the disrespectful people who would not come in on time every time after their appointment and they have no, uh, they don't apologize. They don't say like, oh, no, I had a family emergency or I got caught, whatever. That, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about the uh, kind of the everyday in New York life where the train was 10 minutes late. You know, I, I, I had to take my babies to the school, you know, that kind of thing. Like, right. it's <clears throat> that's what we're talking about. Anyway, so it, it, it just, at least for me, uh, I'm sur- I would say 99% of these, quote, well, I don't want to even call them clinicians. I'm going to call them technicians. 99% just, of those technicians are uh, doing that all the time. Um yeah, so there's yeah. there's more up there, but we don't <laughs> have to <laughs> get into it. I want to know what's the learn to empty your cup. Oh, okay, yeah, I do uh, want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I want that. That I want to so elaborate on that. Th- this kind of goes over. This is related to almost everything, and you and I talk about it like a skill. I think every human being should have, and it should be learned very young is this ability to empty your cup. So, uh, you know, it, you can hear this analogy in Buddhism. You can hear it in, like, mindfulness and meditation and stuff. But the fact that your cup might be full and you have an inability to empty it, meaning you have all this knowledge, whatever it may be. I use this example from that movie Doctor Strange, hmm. and they use that analogy. And I, I somewhat hmm. stole it, but uh, I've heard it before that. But uh, again, with that movie, was this really arrogant doctor. He was a neurosurgeon, 
he gets into a terrible car accident. And I'm sorry for people who haven't seen the movie, but uh, I hope I'm not giving away too much. But I think everyone <laughs> spoiler. knows. Yeah, some spoilers. <laughs> uh, anyway, he mangles his hands in this car accident. So his only, oh, his majority of his tools to perform surgery are done. And he he does not accept the fact that this is the case. Like he can no longer perform surgery. He, he can't even write his own name. So he searches far and wide for solutions. He has multiple surgeries after that. He spends his entire amount of savings and income and he no longer he used to live a luxurious life in manhattan multiple sports cars stuff like that it's all gone and he's desperate and he's in i think they're trying to show physical therapy but it might be occupational therapy because he was trying to rehab his hands so you have this this therapist this clinician who was saying all right you got you got to push a little harder you got to really open up your hands and he's just giving him you know like some uh stereotypical feedback doing verbal exercise. cues verbal cues yeah. And the, and Doctor Strange's character gave him a really arrogant. He's like, "What does your associate's degree tell you in terms of the information? Like how much I'm ever going to recover? Something that affects something very condescending, basically implying that what the fuck do you know? You don't know how I'm going to get better. I'm a friggin' doctor and a surgeon. You're nothing. You're just a therapist." And the guy's like, "Well, actually." Some other guy with a more severe injury got completely better. He had a high cervical. Uh, uh, he, he was paralyzed from the neck down and he, he got he was able to walk again I didn't see him for it and, and so the Doctor Strange calls bullshit and he's like I'll pull his file and I'll show it to you and since he was a hospital employee I guess it, it's okay for HIPAA so he gave he gives him the file and he wrote he wrote a little post and he said told you so so this guy Doctor Strange tracks him down and this guy's playing basketball and he's like oh I gotta know what happened like what did you do you know you it sounds like you had a complete uh, cervical lesion that, that would never heal and, and the guy told him he's like well you anyway after they got over the initial relationship he was like you have to go to this place in Kathmandu and uh, you'll meet this person who's going to show you things that your body can never do but you could train to do anyways so he goes finds this person Karmatash or something like that and for all the hardcore movie fans I'm sorry if I'm butchering all this stuff um, but uh, the head leader uh, it was was this woman who was very powerful, and she was like the leader of all of these. Um, I would call them like sorcerers, but they were they were they had the ability to manipulate uh, the intangible things in the universe, and they can make shields, they can travel through time, and they can travel all this other stuff. But so she's trying to tell him this, and he's being very arrogant about it, and he doesn't believe her. So of course he's got his cup; it's completely full of. You know, years of medical training, uh, all this era. He's got a, quote, uh, photographic memory. So he believes he's way smarter than her, all this other stuff. And she basically says, well, I, I think you need to empty your cup and accept these new things. And so she, she forcefully shows him. She, like, pushes him into another universe and stuff like that. And he scares the shit out of him. And I got to watch this movie. It man. was really cool. I highly cool. recommend it. Uh, but anyway, so the, the, it w why does it relate to what we're talking about? There are a lot of people, new grads in particular, that I have encountered, and unfortunately, they're they're all from the same institution, and, and that seems to be a strange pattern. Hmm. Um, and I, I, it seems after having conversations with them, it seems like their institution teaches them like they know everything when they get out of school, and I, I feel like that's a, that's something that we weren't taught. We were taught uh, the opposite, actually. They're like, when you get out of school, you might be able to begin your training, right? And and, and we had a lot of. Uh, very high-level, again, leaders in their profession, Dr. Howard Makovsky, Emil Uperidorn, and uh, Robert Schreier. These, these guys are leading. 
their respective fields. Emil was like the highest level NIAMP individual yeah. on the East Coast versus the Midwest and West Coast. And Robert Schreier, he headed up uh, Kessler Institute Neuro Rehab, and he was in charge of physicians and things like that. All Th- very humble, though. All very humble. And the things that they kept saying to us was that humility is super important. Learn as much as you can. Go as many courses as you can. So we, we had... We did that when we first got out of school. We would seek help as much as possible, but I'm unfortunately seeing the opposite. I'm seeing nobody wants help. Nobody wants to ask questions. They just want to say, like, well, I already know what this patient needs, and they're not successful with the patient, and they're just like, well, it's the patient's fault. And it relates to what we were just talking about. When you have that insecurity and that lack of knowledge and you combine those two things all at once, it becomes a very dangerous stew of combativeness. And it's very unwarranted. And, it, and again, it, it pulls our profession back. And this is not something that's going to get us forward. Like, this is in, there's an incredible physical therapist that I've talked about him before. He goes by the handle Simple Strength Physio on Instagram and Twitter. And he's the one really leading these pain education series. And I've mentioned it mm. when we were talking to Matt last week. Yes. And he, I guarantee you, he'd be one of the first to go into institutions major institutions and start teaching this full time. And he's just out of school. And he's a perfect example of the ability to empty your cup. He came out of school and he realized that there is so much more out there. And in fact, there's this, this so much more out there is not being taught in school. So he decided to take action and he started to connect with um, well-known physical therapists out in Canada, Australia. And he started to do all these uh, incredible things uh, on social media and now he's getting incredible feedback and he deserves every amount of success he get and I, I want to support those people those are the individuals that are going to continue to lead our profession and 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 lead by example and and we're trying to do the same we're trying to utilize elements of social media educate our patients as much as we can and eric and i are fortunate enough to have those leaders from when in school so our ability to empty our cups we're pretty good at it. Oh, right yeah, man. <laughs> I had an empty cup about two hours ago. And and I had jiu-jitsu, a, right? I had a 140 pound, 150 pound, mm. you know, early 20 year old, nice guy. Mm. I won't mention his name. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was very humbling. Mm. I was, he wrapped up around my arm and could have broke it had I not tapped. There you go. But um, yeah, I, I would say every class. I try. I actually try to go in with a little something in the cup, <laughs> but usually I go in empty. I usually go. I today I kind of said I was like I got this uh, off the topic, but I got a oh, third please. stripe in uh, jujitsu oh, yeah. this week. That deserves a congratulations. Yeah. So um, if if you don't know, a uh, third stripe at Henzo Gracie Institute in Manhattan means uh, Eric can now yeah. take the uh, the purple belt program. Oh, so as a white belt with purple three stripes, belt. he can go in with the <laughs> the other blue belts all the way up to purple. So some play black belts. Oh so he could do John Danaher's class, oh the uh, wizard of uh, jujitsu. Crazy which is man! Awesome. I, I would, it, but again, the, the going back <clears throat> to the cup is like yeah. um, this whole jujitsu experience has definitely humbled me in many ways. Um, but there's just it's just amazing how you could this constant learning process. I, I mean, if you talk to some of well, not that I've talked to some of them, but you listen to some of the grandmasters, mm. whether it's you know Hickson or Maurice, or any of the grandmasters, they talk about this kind of constant learning, yeah. and that even at a black belt level, I mean, we've had many of our instructors say, you know, the journey kind of 
begins again. Well, it's a different journey. It's That's what I was told. It's interesting you say that. When I was, uh, um, I got when I got my first degree black belt in Taekwondo, hmm. our instructor was looking around before he handed out the belt, and he was he was saying to everybody, everybody passed. And I was in high school at the time. I was seventeen, and he said, "You all passed your first degree black belt exam. Congratulations! Your training has now begun." And at, at that time, I mean, Taekwondo is very different from yeah. Jiu-Jitsu. It's, it's nowhere near as complex, nowhere near. Like, it, only, it took me four years to get my first degree black belt. In uh, Jiu-Jitsu, I think at a minimum, on average, if you're like a normal human being, you'll probably get your black belt in 10 years. Right. If you're an exceptional human being, like superhuman, eight years. Right. I've heard of crazy people getting them in four, four years. Four, I mean, they, four, five. they that, that's, that's seven days a week. You know, anyway, from five to seven hours. Yeah. Hours. I mean, but yeah, it's so it's so true. It, and I I would argue that remember when we watched the video with Hicks and Gracie getting his red belt? Oh man, that was and amazing. he didn't even want to take it. No. Nope. And his brothers and his cousin, they were just like, just take it, man. What are you talking about? Just I heard it. a recent podcast with him there, and he said it. He said, you know, I I I still have time to get that belt. You know, I still have to learn. And you know, that's this is coming from someone that supposedly you know one of, if not the best, you know, jujitsu practitioner. There is, but um, mm-hmm. the learning process, this trend that we see of um, you know new graduates coming out, they obviously have some tools. Yeah. But um, I mean, Lee and I, not to self-promote, but I will self-promote. Lee and I were uh, obsessive with our continuing education, as most of our mentors early on told us. Yeah. And uh, I saw a disturbing trend when I was managing a clinic that. There were clinicians that were out of school anywhere from two to four years, and they hadn't taken any continuing nothing, ed, nothing. And you know, and and when you know when I, I would encourage people, hey, you know, I had one guy, um, alien, mm. um, that said that he was comfortable. I was mentioning a kettlebell course, mm. and I said, hey, it's a cool course. You know, I told the whole clinic about it. He said, no, I'm, I'm pretty confident with my with my exercise abilities. And this is coming from a person that really knew nothing. That's crazy. About exercise. So it's a troubling trend, but I always say this, you know, the more of that that's out there, you know. It's going to weed it out. We Weed it out. Yeah. They, they, people will feel and see the difference within within an hour. I would recommend, and this will put a spin on it, if you're a patient and you go see a physical therapist and you want just a couple questions to ask, just ask them, what was the last course that they took? And I, I listen to when it was, watch their face, make sure they're not friggin' lying to you, and then also understand what it was. Like if I said, "Oh, I took NIOP level one," ask them what is NIOP. Right, right. You know, they make them what explain. Yeah. Because you'll know right away whether, and that that's a good indication. They they should be just exploring things. They they should be going out. The last thing that we did was study our asses off for the uh, oh. the OCS, which we won't find out. True, yeah. I, I got asked that question Saturday by my wife. She said, when are you going to find out? I said, oh, mid sometime mid-June. Yeah, yeah, I looked it up. I was like, mid-June? It's about a month, bro. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, four weeks. I mean, it, it feels I long. I, I, I've, I've signed off in my head. No, but, um, smart. But I think with the Con Ed, you know, of all the class, even if, even if you get 10%, if you could take 10% of a Con Ed class, um, I think it's a benefit to you to even if you don't agree with the Con Ed class, yeah. it, it'll solidify you know your resolve on whatever methodology you participate in or you believe in or or you you know 
bottom line, it gives you information, and I think the tools. Yeah, and that was the other thing, too, that is another trend that I see is even if these individuals do take content classes. I remember when we took content classes, I would be obsessive about applying that stuff for at least a couple of weeks. Every, almost every patient I would apply, apply, apply. And at the clinic that we were at, the before the shit went down, um, that would happen. We would see other clinicians go off to con eds that we didn't take, and guess what they would do for the next two weeks? I remember they took a kinesio tape. Oh, uh, taping away. They would tape away for a couple weeks, and they were just everybody, everybody. And, and what I'm trying to say is I understand that evidence is showing that kinesio tape, is, it can be ineffective on a lot of things, but what I'm saying is you learn something new, you apply it, see whether or not it helps you or helps your patients. And then you can either continue to use it or using it sparingly, whatever it is. But that whole use of that, you're applying what you just learned. That's learning in itself. And you can you could subtract it later if you want. That's fine. I don't even see that happening. They just they completely just put a block on it. They just they come back and they say, Oh, none of that was like helpful, none of that made sense. And I'd be like, You haven't even used it yet. You've barely been out of school. How could you say that? Uh, yeah, That's like yeah. me walking into jujitsu. First day, I was like, I'm a fourth degree black belt oh. in Taekwondo. <laughs> I got this. Give me your, your, be- your best black belt. Yeah. I would get choked out in 10 seconds. 10 seconds. And so see, that's maybe. what I love about martial arts is that that's how you learn. You learn very quickly, and, and you're still alive afterwards. You just yeah. have to wake up. Not, but, you know, that's an interesting <laughs> thing. I, you just got to wake up. I, um, now I almost enjoy, it sounds crazy, but... Getting caught in this arm bar today, getting mm-hmm. a cross collar choke. I got s- someone choked me on a Saturday, <laughs> uh-huh. and it was it was comical that we even had a commentary afterwards. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I got cocky. I I, I broke my posture. You know, I shouldn't mm-hmm. have done that. I I gave it to you. Or um, anyway, that's how you learn. Yeah. I, and I, I, I mean, I've tapped. I, I just tap. That's what yeah. I do. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, that's what you do. But, and that's that's how you learn. Right? You you attempt these uh, these physical therapy techniques, and then works doesn't work. Okay, let's say if it doesn't work, why didn't it work? Was it because the way you applied it? Are you a novice at it? Okay, it did work. Did it work because the why you think it did, or was it because of something like pain science? You know, those are the things that help you become better clinicians. And then you can start to say like, all right, well, I, after about three years of using that, I subtracted it from my practice because this has been more effective for me to apply. It doesn't make any sense to me. So that ability to empty your cup is a skill that you need to learn and you can pass this on to patients. Oh, when sure. This, they, they have to do the same thing. They have to learn about their injury. Don't obsess about or perseverate about how it happened. That's not going to make you heal faster and also what triggers it and things like that and if you can give that skill to that patient then you can help them out forever and that that's the whole thing leading by example it goes back to everything else we talked about you should work out yourself you should be you know working increasing your strength increasing your skill repertoire all these things but a lot of a lot of individuals don't do that and and right now, I guess what you know, you're hearing my voice is frustration because I see it really close to me, and, it, and it's in a, a a fairly I wouldn't even say a large institution. It's in a an institution that's out there, and I'm, it's right in front of me. Well, Lee has the best of both well, the best and worst of both worlds, and <laughs> that he sees he knows what the potential is for what he's discussing, yeah. and then he sees the drawback of not utilizing it, and um. With the learning to empty the cup, um, mm-hmm. patients, like you just said, often 
need to test the waters. They need to kind of rethink their workout routine. I mean, what a common thing amongst patients is, oh, I've been doing this for years, yeah. and just recently I can't run anymore. Well, why? What are you doing? Well, I just, I just get on the treadmill and I start going, and I cool down with the two minute walk. I stretch my hamstrings. I stretch my neck. Oh, look what you did to yourself. Look yeah, you, did. <laughs> you didn't stretch your hip flexors. No, but it's it's um, it's a trial and error, and that takes uh, humility to say, I'm not sure what's going on here. I'm mm. going to choose a certain path. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try this different thing. But those things take um, it's a, it's a little bit of risk taking involved there, right? Because yeah. you're, you're going out on a limb and saying, Hey, I, I don't know what's going on. And again, patients are coming to you because there's a loss of control, mm-hmm. and we have to kind of help guide them reestablish that control right. um, with any tools that we may have. And the more con ed, the more experience you have, the more the more movement practice you have in your own life, you're able to relate and, and pass that on to patients. So yeah, get the, moving, physical therapist. Please, sweat. yeah, get. I mean, <laughs> get out of your comfort zone. We've said it before. It's unbelievably important. And the other thing is like, or not the other thing, but the 95% of our success with patients is how we approach them, what we tell them, and how we say it. That's 95%. 5% might be the manual technique, and I'm seeing the flip of new grads and people who are not even in the profession yet. There, there was one new grad who said, like, oh, I'm almost catching up to you because I'm going to take this course and this course. I'm like, <laughs> wow. Uh, it's not about the courses I took. It's the way I apply. Like, they, they don't understand. time. Yeah, and I don't – they, they observe me doing working with patients, and I don't do anything fancy. No fancy manual work, extremely basic. But what I do do is do an extreme amount of focus on my language towards them, giving them plans, giving them control, self-efficacy, all of that, and I lead by example. So I let them know that I'm with them on this. A lot of uh, jujitsu players that I treat, I you know they know that I do jujitsu, and that helps them because they can communicate with me differently. I can communicate them with differently. But that's how I'm successful with patients if I am successful. Mm-hmm. And they see the opposite. They're, they think I'm doing some sort of magical manual thing, or the way I'm handling the patients when I'm massaging their calf or, or their <laughs> neck. And I, I want to be like, there's nothing to do with that. It, you, even if, if you were to have a conversation to me and how, and that's the other thing too, there's just a lot of assumptions. So I, I've never, I guess I've never approached, when I got out of school, you and I, we would hound people who were had been out of school as long as we had been out of school. Absolutely. We would hound them and, and I, to the point of annoying. I remember Christopher Johnson, I would I hadn't even graduated yet or I just did. We just graduated and I was working part-time at New York Sports Medicine and I was shadowing him on my own time multiple times a week. And I would just listen to him. I wouldn't I wouldn't question him on everything. It was just for me to see how he approaches people. And then when I did start a question about things that I should have known, he would first give me answers next week. He'd be like you should look this up on your own. Yeah, like, that, yeah that's how much. That. Yeah, that's how I much I would that. ask him questions. I've had, home, yeah, I'd had homework from LB. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have, you know, I'd have questions, and he would do the same. He'd yeah. say, "Well, finish this up. F- give me a report on it." And and I, I, I spent hours on a weekend or yeah. on my time off. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of sacrifice, and that's another thing that you know, it's it might be a generational thing. 
which we won't well, go into. <laughs> that's all the that's all the podcast. <laughs> but uh, Lee, Lee's getting <laughs> Lee's sweating it out over here. He's about to, to lose it. But no, it's a generational thing of sacrifice, right? I mean, yes. this, these um, taking a course was nice, mm-hmm. but ultimately, it's it's time, time, yeah. time, time. And it, uh, yeah, I mean, on the positive swing of it, uh, those individuals, those leaders we see online, social media, like I mentioned before, Zach Abor, he's in that. Uh, generation, but he's he's utilizing all of his tools in a very powerful way, and I I encourage everybody else to do the same, and and take a lesson from that individual, if not a group of those people. They're doing a great job. Good and stuff. So, yeah. That that is our um, our <laughs> rant for the day. We're closing out the podcast. Uh, Thanks we for will listening. Talk. Thanks for listening. No, no. We're gonna get into we're gonna get into the clinical aspect of things. Clinical we are gonna content. go into shoulder. The shoulder. Shoulder. Who gets shoulder pain? Yeah. I mean, we see. I, I would say. Well, it's interesting when we took the OCS. The four main categories that were the high, highest tested on cervical lumbar shoulder and uh no what was the last one shoulder uh back shoulder knee maybe knee Knee, knee, that's right so those four are probably the most common now in the knee oh no sorry in the shoulder (laughs) (laughs) we're switching it up man we're going the next week uh in the shoulder uh it's pretty common but i I would say you know there's athletes definitely non-athletes who get shoulder pain but the most common individuals that I see who hurt their shoulders uh, seems to be males more than females, seems to be uh, athletic individuals more than non-athletic individuals, but both happen. Hmm. Uh, I, do f- I do see, and uh, I'd be curious to see what, you, uh, what uh, kind of patients you see, but it's, it does seem to be a very misinformed diagnosis. Yes, um Yes, yes, and yes, uh, mm-hmm. multiple times. I mean, uh, the rotator cuff tears and labral tears are often what people come to the clinic for because mm-hmm. an MRI shows that their rotator cuff. And, and I have experience with um, recently in the last few months mm-hmm. of patients with um, rotator cuff tears that have been there for years, and then recently they're coming in with some shoulder pains. Like, well, mm. you know, we took another MRI. The rotator cuff hasn't changed, but wow, I can't lift my arm. Mm. Is it a full tear? The full tear, full okay. thickness tear on two of these cases. Um, but they don't really present as full thickness tears in terms of what uh, we would see through some objective measures. So there's mm. no dropped arm. There's no compensating pattern. There's no... So they're more of, and again, this shoulder impingement is being shown to be, it's just some kind of biomechanical inefficiency or some learned pattern that, that, that over time has gone haywire. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting. It's not always cut and dry with full tears. You know, if you read the research, full tears on a whole, they'll do better with surgery. Full tears. Right. But... There's been some cases. It has to be individualized, individually examined. So I've had patients similar to what Eric is explaining, completely full tear of one of their rotator cuffs, if not a couple. Their movement patterns in their shoulder are adequate, functional, and some of them are still athletic. And it's more about a motor pattern. It's more about something that they have learned either to do or not to do. And um, in those cases, why would you want to go in there and arthroscopically repair it? 
you'd have you'd have to ask yourself what do you what are your long-term goals let's say this person is able to function they have mild discomfort they have good uh, functional strength and they're not planning on doing something extremely athletic anytime soon the risks for surgery are pretty high it, if I were to advise someone, I don't think surgery would be necessary. It, right. it would be more of continued strengthening. There's a lot of evidence to show that you can strengthen your shoulder girdle, which are the muscles around the shoulder blade, and you could support that complete tear. Yeah, and often with the shoulder tears, one looks in isolation at this tear, but the person has really poor um, scapular setting or glenohumeral setting or combination of both. They have mm-hmm. poor thoracic mobility. They have poor, you know, they, they, they don't move well elsewhere. And obviously the shoulder is the, I think, the victim, not necessarily the culprit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> and, you know, again, I know that there's a ton of stuff on non-optimal, well, just talking about posture being BS, right, in the yeah. optimal position. Um, but there's some blatant patterns that we know are not conducive with optimal shoulder function, right? Sure. So, you know, if that humeral head is not in the optimal plate, obviously every individual is different. But mm. uh, these are things that I think what we see clinically mm. probably more so than the actual structure. And I think that's where the misinformation lies the most, that uh, with the whole structural damage yeah. thing. I, I have a patient or I had a patient – Recently, he was a very interesting case. Um, the the doctors could not give him a straight answer about what kind of tear he had, but he, I think, consulted three surgeons, and he got three different answers. And um, one was like, you have to have surgery right away. Another one was like, try physical therapy first for a certain amount of time. If it doesn't uh, take, then get surgery. The other guy was like, no, you don't need surgery at all. Just do physical therapy and strengthen him. And uh, if you look at the MRI report, it shows um, not uh, didn't say didn't use the words full thickness tear. So whatever radiologist was interpreting it didn't say that. It just says rotator cuff tear, supraspinatus. Um, and then if you look at him mechanically, and this individual could raise his arm without extreme compensation. Things that we look out for: if one were to raise their arm and their shoulder goes up to their ear, and they're unable to get it clearly over their head without with those kind of mechanics where the shoulder hikes up. That's usually not a great sign because that means that they're losing that ability to have the good little glide in there, what Eric said before, the humeral head to kind of go down and back in the socket. And they're also using other muscles to raise their arm, like their upper trap and other things that move around the shoulder blade versus raising their, uh, and their deltoid, um, raising their humerus. So when that happens, that can cause issues down the line, mainly accessory things. So like, let's say a neck issue or stress on the other uh, rotator cuff muscles. Um, and then overactive muscles like the overactive delt, things like that, and that could strain the delt with time. But it's just not efficient. So, um, but he wasn't moving like that. He had a nice clean raise. He had full range. It wasn't until I really put end range pressure on him that he started to get discomfort and he had full like behind the back, all this stuff. But uh, his biggest concern, it's, it seemed to be more of a, he didn't know what was going to happen if he didn't get surgery. So he was, mm. he was being told, like, if you don't get surgery, then it'll be too late down the line because of his age. Resection. Yeah, like total shoulder replacement, all that stuff. So, th- again, that's not, no one can say that. He didn't have any, like, crepitus in his shoulder. No, no incidence of, like, early arthritis or arthrosis or anything like that. And his MRI didn't show that. So I think that was misinformation given to him. 
my advice to that individual, which I did give to him, and he was nice enough to listen and he applied it. It sounds like we've been in touch via email. Um, to continue on, he had a very strict strengthening program, and he continued to do that. And he wanted to know, which everybody wants to know, what what should I not do? Mm-hmm. Like everyone wants, nobody wants to know what they should do. Everybody wants to don't know. Don't lift heavy weights. <laughs> right. I was like, you could do anything you don't want. Don't sleep with your arm <laughs> under your bed. Yeah. Don't don't make don't your three <laughs> fingers turn in ninety degrees. Well, I don't oh, know. No, it's crazy. Um, but I was like, you you have to, you know, if you're going to choose this route of non-surgery, then. Uh, get your shoulder as strong as possible, and it's just about progression. Anything, any anything in the body, is about gradual progression, and it's about allowing the body to adapt to it with time. Like we 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 took about nine to thirteen months to start to walk. Imagine what you have to do with a new skill, and that and that's an example of how nature works. It, everything works with time. Nothing works like a pill because pill is not natural it's artificial <laughs> <laughs> and you shouldn't have an immediate change overnight with something like this for instance so um yeah, yeah and kick that's uh yeah <clears throat> key to let your patients know mm-hmm. uh, frozen shoulder frozen shoulder. <laughs> frozen shoulder who's frozen who has a frozen shoulder it's typically when the weather is below 32 yeah. no 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 <laughs> yeah. no it's typically it's- females white over 50, 50. Oh, I brought all my stats, but we don't even look at it. I don't know. I, I, I just get, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going off the top of my head, correct? You know, you guys could report back, but it, it's um, idiopathic. We don't know why it occurs. Yeah, I've seen a couple recently that, that are really interesting, meaning that they don't know why it happened and they didn't present typically what, like, the markers we would look out for, like, um, you know, the main thing is certain range of motion. ER is the most affected. So the ability to externally rotate your shoulder at the glenohumeral drawing is extremely limited. You usually have that hike when you raise your arm, um, and you might have a comorbidity like diabetes. Uh, diabetes, and I think, isn't it also in pregnancy? Pregnancy or mm-hmm. even post-pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the older, I think diabetes was one of them. Yeah. I don't know can't remember any other but it, it really it, frozen shoulder is a bit of a mystery i mean what, what are the four fa- phases yeah he's well, he's getting that I'm book out. he's like he's gonna get out the facts he doesn't like this uh <laughs> go blow I no it's the truth because no i don't i don't trust it either because i we just we we didn't sound confident on on the frozen shoulder but it, it it's an interesting um condition to treat um, it is in in the fact that you know um you don't, they're finding now, like I, I remember when I first started my volunteer work before PT school and I went to a couple of uh, clinics and they had a lot of frozen shoulders and they were treated extremely aggressive. The individuals would be in so much pain. Crying. Yeah. I, there was a lot of people who were like, we were tapping out, like I can't take it anymore. Let's stop for the day. Um, and what they're showing now in the research, I have more laid back management is, is actually more successful so meaning like it's not that aggressive um yeah i think it probably ties into all the pain science that we're discussing 100%. that um you know i i definitely came from a school of thought initially that you know we heat up the joint mm-hmm. while you heat up the joint you work on passive range of motion or or joint mobile mo- joint mobilizations mm-hmm. and fairly recent end range 
go for it, crank on the joint, and um, crank on the joint. That does not sound good. <laughs> That's terrible. But, well, there uh, is a test called the crank test. But there is. But we're not going to do that on them. Yeah, no, we, they, you're not going to get too far with that one. They're not going to go too far with the crank test. But uh, definitely in my experience, I've had some people respond very well. And then I've had people kind of hang tight for a bit. And then things usually do resolve on their own. But yeah. it might uh, take a little while. It might take a little do. while. Interesting. Okay. So just like Eric said, primary frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis, 40 to 65 years old, most common, female more than males. If in one shoulder, places risk for the opposite shoulder involvement over time, so 5 to 34%. 14%, they have it in both shoulders. Etiology remains elusive, but they do find elevated serum cytokines and other growth factors that promote repair and remodeling as part of the inflammatory cycle. Uh, it's always very interesting because... Um, in the presence of these elevated cytokines, a minor insult could initiate an inflammatory healing response. And result of this, the exaggerated and sustained inflammation and fibrosis response. By the way, I, I just I was reading that. It's not from my memory. I'm, <laughs> I, I don't have that. <coughs> good of memory. Um, no. So it, it, it's I have heard cases where like they'll they'll, ha- they'll remember like a month their shoulders a little bit painful and they have an odd movement in the shower or something. And all of a sudden, they can't move their arm again normally or they have a physical therapist crank their arm that's right and they probably come back and that's definitely a telltale sign that something's not right yeah it's worse off they've lost range of motion and then you should promptly ask them what did you do so yeah the primary is idiopathic so they don't know it's elusive secondary that's what we were just talking about uh systemic diabetes or thyroiditis, and that could either be hyper or hypo. So you could have a thyroid condition, and that seems to have a big connection to the onset of these guys. You can have an extrinsic factor, which would be uh, a stroke, a a heart attack, COPD, uh, liver disease. Um, Yeah, and then uh, we've seen it a bunch after rotator cuff surgery. Yes, I was going to say that's... um, And that's just external cause, right? I believe so. Yeah, that's yeah, they so, put it in there. So, yes, um, typically after a rotator cuff surgery or a labral repair, uh, mm-hmm. patients are put in a sling. They're immobilized for anywhere from you know, very liberally, uh, four, three to five days, right. or <laughs> up to six to eight weeks, which... It's crazy. Yes, which would yeah. freeze anybody's shoulder. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because they... The the patterns are the same in the sense of when, well, at least from the patients that I've seen, um, it, there's a great deal of fear before the surgery, great deal of fear after the surgery, and then they're given a lot of misinformation about how they should not move the shoulder. And research is showing that those instructions in terms of the, like a rotator cuff repair, what you do when you walk, you place it more, uh, sorry, the same, if not more, force on those tendons as you do if you were to, quote, move the arm, move the tendons. That's what they're showing. Wow. Yeah, That's and awful. it's so ridiculous. Like breathing, it's, it puts pressure. When you're on the sling, it puts pressure on the rotator cuff. You, you can't avoid those, those forces. You're not going to tear that rotator cuff when immediately after surgery. And why I say that, unless you do something, of course, like one case I heard, this guy tore his... Uh, rotator cuff before because he had to fly for business. It was like the first couple of weeks and he was assisting with his non-involved arm. Um, someone put their overhead 
uh, luggage in the, the thing. Mm. And then something else fell towards him. So he shot out of his sling and tried to block it. And he <laughs> popped the thing. So, like, of course, if that's going to happen, yeah, you're going you're gonna to injure some structure. You fall on your arm. Yeah. But you're not, if you, like... It's usually oh. traumatic. It's, it, it's not that... You just, like, open up your hand, and all of a sudden, pop. It's gonna, right. No, it's not going to happen like that. You're very resilient. Like, the, one of the things we have to say is, or the theme we have to continue to reinforce is your, t- your, your body is strong. Your body is strong inherently. Um, and if, Stronger than we think. Yeah. And just, just yet go weak. Do yet weak. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, no, as Lee's saying, usually uh, the fear instilled, I mean, it, it's, it's common. Look, they just had a yeah. traumatic event they just had anchors put into their bone Mm -hmm. they just had their tendons pulled they may have had a bone shaved at the same time Mm. they were sedated the doctor tells them not to use their arm you know Mm -hmm. so that there's a lot of fear and um most importantly you got to get these people moving there was a research article i just read that i think they used shoulder surgery i think it was for labor repairs um and they had the biggest correlation to successful outcomes had nothing to do with uh, pre-post-op, but it was how they felt about the surgery going in. Meaning, like, uh, they were asked, I think, the simple question of how hopeful do you feel that you get a full recovery? The people who kind of answered, you feel very hopeful or even close to that, did it extremely, uh, they did much better than the individuals who were hesitant and or they were not hopeful. So, I mean, that makes total sense. And then they showed all this research that, we have, even though when we go under anesthesia, we are technically asleep and knocked out, our brain is very active. We, we hear things, our subconscious is aware, we're taking in information, that is proven. There is no, um, there's no question about that. Why does that matter? Is because it could be a conversation that's going on with surgeons during the operation, they could be saying things that's kind of um, threatening to the brain and or just the amount of abuse that's happening during the surgery. Abuse. The, man, sorry, I <laughs> should say that. The physical. stuff like, oh, sorry. Quick, quick, take the camera off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more like orthopedic surgery is like carpentry. I mean, people oh, do have to understand that. You're not going to wake up without pain because oh, man, you're, you're getting stuff. insult after insult. They're going to have to open and, you know, it's... Just watch it. The YouTube has this all this stuff. You, you watch a knee replacement. You watch a labor repair. They're taking Typically hammers. There's, there's music playing. <laughs> there's jokes being said. I mean, it's right. right. I mean, true. This is a day at the office for orthopedic surgeons, and yeah. you know they they listen. They do. They in many cases they could do great things. You know yeah. they they bring back they bring back a lot of people. But realize that it's <clears throat> it's a major event for anybody going through it for right. sure. Yeah. Um, so labral tears, labral tears. Th- that's another one. I, I, you know, I'm thinking of a case, um, young individual, uh, the mechanism, uh, mechanism of injury was a uh, fitness class, slipped on a sweaty floor, um, hurt his shoulder, didn't know what happened, went to the doctor, um, the doctor did MRI, MRI showed slap tear, which is an acronym for superior labrum, anterior to posterior, and it's the most common tear you can have uh, in your labrum. And they're actually showing that if you reach a certain age, if you don't have a slap tear, that's an anomaly. That's very significant. I think the cutoff was like 38 or 40. Um, so it was... Definitely. We, we definitely got... Oh, some. we got tears up the wazoo, man. We got man. tears, man. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah, so this individual, he was told, guess what he was told? And he, mind you, he's a very young individual. You're going to need surgery. Mm-hmm. 
If not, you're going to dislocate your shoulder. And they told him that he dislocated it during that incident. Yet, after a line of questioning, unfortunately, it was only by me because I asked if anybody else asked these questions. Did, did anyone manually relocate your shoulder? Did you feel it pop back in? Did, you know, these are the things that people have to understand. And after this line of questioning, there was no, no, no. He did not dislocate his shoulder. At worst, he probably subluxed it. Right. At worst. So one has to understand that. So there's three main categories. There's dislocation, there's separation, and there's subluxation. So se- uh, subluxation and dislocation usually happen at the glenerohumeral humeral joint. And they both involve the humeral head or the arm bone going in and out of the socket. Now, the difference is with a dislocation, it has to be manually relocated, meaning it dislocates, it stays dislocated until an external force comes and relocates it. So I used an example, lethal weapon. So Mel Gibson, that, lethal weapon. Yes, that's a very extreme way to how to <laughs> put your shoulder back in. <laughs> Highly unadvised. I wouldn't, I yeah. wouldn't do that. It was just more of like a, a popular culture no, thing. No, no, but it's, it it's, is. that. that he yeah. had to he had to do something else to get it back Absolutely. in, right? He had to bang throw his shoulder. He bang into the wall. I love that movie, man. It was, that was great. great. And he was perfect for it because he was crazy and he was young, so he was like very intense role. But um, I, yeah, the, it's it's quite a. I've seen at least three dislocations, um, fresh from a CrossFit class, Ooh, yeah. um, and you know, two of these individual. Well, one individual it was his first class. He did not alert the fitness staff of his <laughs> previous uh, dislocations. Oh, he dislocated before. Oh, so that's that's the, that's probably the most common. That just thing. like an ankle sprain, you know, yeah. if you dislocate your shoulder, there's a high probability you'll do it again. Mm-hmm. So this individual attempted to put a 45 pound bar over his head, which he did, mm-hmm. and they were trying to warm up with some overhead squats which he probably didn't have the thoracic, he didn't have the mobility for wow. on various levels. Right. Popped out, he hit the floor. Luckily, the bar didn't hit him in the head. Um, oh, my God. This individual, I happened to be passing by, literally. Of the gym? Or of the, the gym. I was walking, I was going to go work out myself, okay. and I was walking in, and there was a disaster scene. Guys on the floor, oh, but there's a group of people, and... Um, <laughs> And the, you, the you, owner, the yeah, owner, yeah. which I'm very friendly with, was like, "I'm so glad you're here. Help out, <laughs> help me out." And I was like, "All right." So it's pretty traumatic when you look at someone's shoulder, yeah. and there's this big space. There's this, there's six inches of just nothing, mm-hmm. and you got a bone. And and you know the person first thing they say is, "Are you going to put it back in?" And I said, "No, no I'm going to put way. it back in. You need to go to the hospital." Yeah. Um, so anyway, the guy went to shock. He almost threw up. He turned purple and green. We gave him a banana. We gave him some Gatorade and threw him in a cab. You know, I I tried to create. I don't. We supported the arm into yeah. the cab, and um, that was a wrap. We I, I taped. Excuse me. I put a little bit of a sling. Sling, yeah. But um, so he had a. He, they did relocate it. When they he was they relocated it. Luckily, there was no nerve or vascular damage. Super important. Most most dislocations do are followed up with. Um, can have some potential damage to the rotator cuff and or the labrum. And but if, I'm, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, but but that's a dislocation. Mm-hmm. Um, subluxation would be explain. So educate sub, me on that. Subluxation is a separation of the um, 
humeral head, right? But it relocates on its own. Gotcha. So whatever gotcha. movement's happening, and I've heard many patients oh. talk about like a bench press, and they're like, "Oh my god, my shoulder went out." Then when I finished the bench press, it went back in. And I, I actually, well, I, I both dislocated and I've subluxed my shoulder, but both of my shoulders when we were in PT school, I oh. I subluxed. <laughs> so here's my own painful story and. It, you guys can have a laugh at my own expense, which I definitely laugh at we myself should show. We should put up the picture in the show notes. Oh, that's right. We have a picture. I, I'll, I'll find it. I'll have to find uh, that's a, One that's of our classmates was very key on taking pictures of that situation. Yeah. We, <laughs> I know who it was. Too. We, had, uh, uh, we were taking our geriatrics class, <laughs> and our geriatrics teacher, who was fantastic, she was very witty, and she was huge on educating us on the importance of exercise, again, ahead of her time, in the sense that what's happening now, mass media. And uh, she flashes a picture of Mr. Jack LaLanne. Uh, rest in peace. He, he's an incredible man. Um, he was doing his fingertip push-ups, which is he was known for. And the fingertip push-ups, if you don't know what they are, is push-up position, but walk your hands all the way out, and you're basically supporting your uh, arms over your head and on your fingertips, and you do push-ups that way. So it's very unorthodox, and your chest is going up and down. I used to do these things all the time. I used to do crazy various amounts of push-ups when I was an undergrad. Now, mind you, I'd been out of undergrad for God knows how long. I, what year was it? It was like 2008, maybe? Eight. So I graduated in 2003. I, I might have been doing those push-ups in 1999, 2000, 2001. So uh, it's been a long time since I was doing those push-ups. And while we were in grad school, we weren't working out. We didn't have time for no, working out. No, no. Um, so I, uh, for some reason, I look at that picture. I was like, oh, I used to do those. And then she said immediately when I was thinking that, she said, anyone who could do these push-ups, I'll give them uh, a high grade on the next quiz. And she, was, she used to give us a quiz. And everybody in class, including uh, Mr. Dan Rofay, he was like, oh, Lee, Lee could do it. Because I was, I was known as like the physical freak right. of the class. Well, which he jumped. Lee, Lee didn't I really did, waste any time. Waste he, any jumped, time. Was, <laughs> he jumped I right, like, right. <laughs> I was super excited. They cleared the space. Everyone, it, everyone was on board. It was like no one missed a beat. And so they, <laughs> Drum rolls and all. I, I, I go down. I, get, I walk my hands out. I feel steady. And then I go towards the floors. My chest is close to the floor. I'm still smiling. And I go to push back up. So I'm pushing my fingers <laughs> into the ground. Nothing happens except pop, pop. I fall to the ground. Face hits face the ground. Win. Everyone's like, oh. <laughs> Everyone, everybody stops. And then I literally feel <laughs> my arms pop pop again and I push myself back up so I complete it and then I stop yeah. and I look around everyone's like oh he did it but then the person who was taking the picture was like are you okay like luckily something happened <laughs> and sure enough I definitely subluxed both of my shoulders rightfully so because it was not uh, he didn't warm up I didn't warm up I didn't you no, know, hit, I, no shoulder cars <laughs> I didn't do any of that so I ended up having some physical therapy after luckily I went to see a very uh, helpful physical therapist, and he guided me through some stuff, quick recovery. But anyways, it was no picnic. Um, it was very painful. Yeah. It was a shock. It was more of a shock. When I heard those pops and I hit the floor, I thought they were dislocated because it was a very similar sensation to when it was dislocated. Oh, so when I went to go move them again, and I was happy they moved, and I pushed back <laughs> up, I knew they weren't dislocated because I knew when I dislocated my shoulder, I wasn't able to move it. But it was um, it was interesting. So... That is not an emergency, thank goodness. It, it was, uh, there might be some damage in my shoulder. I've had MRIs in my shoulder 
after that, and sure enough, it showed labral tears and other things, but nothing serious enough for me to get an intervention. Um, but to speak on the, what, what can happen after the frank dislocation, nerve damage, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Um, you can have uh, a, what's called a Hill-Sachs lesion. Now, Hill-Sachs lesion is a fracture on the humeral head, and it happens when you relocate. So that's why it's important to have a someone who knows what they're doing to relocate your shoulder. I've had I've seen a dislocated shoulder uh, in front of me happen, and they asked me to relocate it, and I, I outrightly refused. I've never reloc- relocated a shoulder, and I never will. I'm not a physician, and I'm not an EMT. Yeah, uh, whoever, I mean, it's a procedure. I mean, yeah. it's a technique. It's typically done in an ER. Sometimes there's um, a uh, anesthesia local given prior to it. You know, it's not something that anybody, you know, unless, um, I don't know, unless you're in a forest somewhere or you're in a right. yeah, combat situation, you know, you're in a military. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but no. it's not something that you should uh, try to participate in no. on your own. Physical therapy doesn't, we don't get trained in that. No. So, I don't know. Anyways, so those are the main things. And to be informed about that, just because uh, there was another article most recently about slap tears. Mm. I think I had uh, sent it over. But, um, again, they they showed when you hit a certain age, for you to not have a slap tear in your shoulder is an anomaly. Is an anomaly. And that's important to know. Now, if you have a slap tear that's an acute, let's say if you're in a car accident, you dislocate your shoulder, get it relocated, <laughs> you have a, a large slap tear and or fracturing of the bone, you start to have signs of instability of the shoulder, meaning like you roll over in bed at night, the shoulder dislocates again or sublux, and that happens persistently over time, then there might be something that had to be intervened there. You can get a slap repair. But if it's like this individual that we're talking about now, questionable subluxation, slap tear that could have been there already, he was athletic, he had full range of motion. He responded so well after the first week of physical therapy, full range, full strength, and there's st- he was still fearful about getting surgery. And, and it's hard to talk to, you know, us as physical therapists are so low on the totem pole when it comes to this information. And that's both on a uh, conscious and subconscious level for the patient. They go to the doctor. They have a white coat on. They're giving that information. They're part of a large institution. Part of a large institution. You have to use insurance. You look at the... The uh, the insurance co- the insurance quote this is not a bill and it's five hundred dollars to speak to the 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 physician for thirty seconds and they look at our bill it's seventy five dollars to get you know an hour or whatever it is you know or whatever they pay a copay for in network insurance so in the brain that's like this heaviness there heavy this weight of their words versus weight of our words right. but you know what we see a lot more patients. With a- after these surgeries and, and before, and, and this individual did not need surgery, and I believe he heeded this advice. He continued um, his athletic endeavors, and he's doing better. But <clears throat> so that uh, be well informed. Yeah. If if you uh, if you uh, question whether or not you should get surgery, go get evaluated by a, a, an experienced clinician. I know it's sad to say, but get someone who's got more than three years' experience and. Uh, yeah, I've seen with with regard to this. I have a particular case that I'm, I started working on a couple of months ago, where mm-hmm. a woman had a previous labral repair mm-hmm. uh, ten years ago, um, and she had a fall in November. <clears throat> she had a fall. Someone knocked, pushed. Someone knocked her out. Someone pushed <laughs> her. She broke her fall with her arm, uh-huh. 
she felt that she had like a posterior dislocation. So Ooh. it it was a sublux, right? Mm. Relocated right then and there. She did feel it. Got an MRI immediately. I mean, within a week or two, and um, it did show a lesion. Mm. It did, did show a little fracture, a little chip of the bone. Mm-hmm. And the result was she saw a couple other therapists prior to me, um, wasn't getting any better, and she had what's what we call multidirectional instability. Uh huh. Yeah. So that um, that was evident upon evaluation. She had some positive, like, sulcus. You could see that the humeral head had an anterior placement. Mm-hmm. Even her scapula set differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was avoiding a lot of strengthening moves. Now, she was kind of referred to me by her personal trainer. Mm-hmm. She was referred to me by a personal trainer who was, a, you know, an avid strength and conditioning <coughs> into strength training. Mm-hmm. So she's been avoiding, quote, upper body. And... After evaluating her and treating her, we gave her some really basic rotator cuff and shoulder stability exercises, but we started to load the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, simple planking, racking, even getting her to do some back squats, which puts load on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she was able, the back squats were later in her progression, but she was feeling quite stable. So objectively, she was a little tighter. She was able to control the shoulder. She didn't have pain on end range. But she had an incident with a door. She tried to stop a door. Mm. She kind of irritated her shoulder. Mm. So much so that she reached out to the surgeon, and she's now scheduled for surgery Mm. in the summer. Um, but she's functioning well, and this is a person that she feels with her children that she, you know, she's given it seven, seven to nine months. She has strength, strengthened. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, oh. she, she's, she's given it some, she didn't jump into surgery, and it was, a, you know, she knows the surgeon from the last one, and he said, listen, let's see how, he wasn't advocating cutting her, but. Li- what would you say is an estimate of her external rotation? I would say 80 to, five, 80 to 90%. 80 to 90%. So yeah. she's got full, does she full have range. excessive, like 110 degrees? Not or? excessive. Okay. No, not excessive. Positive apprehension, though. Mm-hmm. So when, for those of you who don't know, putting the <clears throat> arm in 90 degrees abduction and then externally rotating the shoulder, uh, with people that have instabilities, um, they will quickly either... T- Jiu-jitsu turn in <laughs> a, <laughs> a, quick, a little hip escape quickly or um, or they will fringe. And then the retest for that is to put a little compression on the anterior mm-hmm. shoulder and typically patients say, oh, that feels so much better. So, you yeah, know. That's a positive. That's a positive. Um, She'll probably do well with surgery then. Exactly. So, unfortunately, she's going under the knife. But fortunately, you know, she did try – she knows what it's about. She's a very pragmatic person. Um, but again, she uh, am very well informed. Mm-hmm. And she knows what the process is going to be like. So see you on the uh, mm-hmm. table. And, th- <laughs> and that's the other thing, too. Like, we're a lot of, I think the impression sometimes could be uh, when we talk about this stuff, oh, you'd never believe in surgery. That's not the case at all. I, I have many cases. Where I was like, I'm, it's good that this individual got surgery, thinking of one individual. Um, you get surgery in another country. Uh, it was a great surgery. It was very aggressive, but the history was significant. He had solid dislocations. He had over 40 
and very athletic individual in high school. And he would, he's an individual who would dislocate in his sleep. And he, he would have, he learned how to relocate it. And they went in there and they tightened things up like crazy. They did an open procedure, it wasn't orthoscopic. Um, they put in excessive amount of anchors. They didn't do any rotator cuff repairs. I don't think he had any tears. But he had significantly less range of motion afterwards. But the rehab was good because after the initial stages, it was now he's not going to dislocate anymore. And it might have helped him decrease the likelihood of him getting arthritis uh, or I should say early onset arthritis in that shoulder joint. Because right. that's the thing. When you have that much movement and you dislocate on the most perfunctory movements. Walking down the street. Right. And that word, by the way, I learned from a patient because they used it over and over again one time. And you had to Google? <laughs> I, I was like, I have no idea what perfunctory, perfunctory. means. My vocabulary uh, is very weak right what now. What about sentient? <laughs> sentient. Did you, did, I think you sent me the John the Dan. John, I think. Yeah. I oh, that too. was great. Sentient. I've only heard that I in had, movies, but. <clears throat> I, I know it was something to do with senses, but I had to stop. They usually talk about with artificial intelligence, sentient oh, beings. Man, I, I put it, I was like, <clears throat> Yeah, man, he's on another yeah. level. Love it. I love it. Um, but yeah, so I, he, uh, doing this mundane stuff, I mean, he could probably dislocate eating cereal. So, right. like, if that keeps happening, there are trauma. There's trauma to the shoulder every time. He has to relocate. Trauma, trauma, trauma. Now he's not. He hasn't dislocated since. Obviously, he's got less range of motion. But you know what? He he said in his own words, he's got everything he needs. He works out. Uh, he was interested in doing MMA, um, jujitsu, and he was able to start that. And now he doesn't have to worry about his shoulder when he if he gets caught in the arm like an arm bar or whatever it may be. Um, but th- those cases, we that's why it, there has to be an individual case by case basis of things. So when people ask, "Oh, what do you think of plantar fasciitis? What do you think of?" Well, we have to evaluate you and see what your individual needs and your history is, and that's what physical therapists do and other clinicians do who know what they're doing. Yes, we're. Um off to uh wow so we're doing this in a little reverse fashion which is pretty cool <laughs> we're, 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 we're tarantinoing it we're, we're to tell you the end and this is like pulp fiction of shoulder right now that's right so now we're going to take it back the anatomy and physiology of this shoulder um, nobody fucking move <laughs> everybody get on the fucking ground <laughs> i can't i want to watch that movie again. that's a great movie oh uh, <laughs> I, I always catch oh, it at shit. random times. It's good stuff. Yeah, man. That's a classic. Um, the shoulder is, is pretty complicated. It's pretty complex. No. Um, Ooh, that guy, has that's the name of his course, Complex Shoulder. Or cool. sho- I, uh, Adam Meekins. We, uh, oh. we talked about it with Matt last week, and I yeah. follow him quite a bit. I think it's called Shoulder Complex. I think I got that wrong. I don't think it's called Complex Shoulder. I think it's called Shoulder Complex. Sh- yeah, he's, he's so there's, there's some stuff going on in the shoulder. We have the uh, <laughs> scapula. We have the sternal... Well, let's talk about the joints involved, right? Yeah. So the scapula thoracic, which t- technically isn't a true joint because right. it's... It's floating. It's floating <laughs> scapula. Then we have the sternoclavicular joint. We have the AC joint, which I think I separated. Oh, yeah. So ago. we didn't talk about separation. Yeah. Oh, we're going to... Yes. We got to go back. And then the mm. GH, glenohumeral joint. Right. Going back to separation. Mm. So we, we, we discussed sublux. We discussed dislocation. Right. How would you describe this separation? Separation is interesting. I've also separated my shoulder. <laughs> it was another, I think, you know, I was a little bit uh, scrappy in my formative years. <laughs> so I, had a, I had a buddy in college. 
um, who was a wrestler. He's a well-known. Uh, I went to initially. I went to a Division three college. I, I, we stated it in our background podcast, but it was. Uh, so he he competed at Division three. He was still pretty high level, and he knew I did martial arts, and so. Uh, I, in my scrappy, cocky self, I was like, oh, let's, let's mess around. And so he grabbed me right away. And he, I don't know what he did. That's how, how dramatic it was. He, he stepped forward, stepped back, threw me off balance. I was off one leg. And so he had both my arms locked up, and I landed directly on my, mm. on my shoulder. Mm. And uh, sure enough, I heard a little, mm. little zing, pain going down the arm. I had a little dead arm for a while. Ugh. Months went by. I ignored it because I thought it was just like, you idiot, you fell on your shoulder. And then uh, they did an x-ray, and they're like, yeah, sure enough, you had a separation, but not big enough to have a surgery. And so, when, so I, I've had some clinicians say that you don't have a, a like a step-off deformity or anything like that. I've had other clinicians mm, say that I definitely do. I have one right now. Yeah. <laughs> but got, Sorry. No, no. It, so the, the separation is at a different joint. So it's not related to sublux dislocation. It's at your acromium clavicular joint so if you put your uh hand on top of your arm you should feel a little bump um on top of your shoulder and that represents where the ac joint is so let's say if you it's most commonly separated when you fall on it directly on it so a lot of snowboards will get this and the actual separation occurs when the ligaments that support that joint tear and there's different grades of tear one through four four of course being a complete three is pretty bad but four is where you'll you'll see a visual deformity, and typically you would need surgery for that. They've shown through research, but all the stuff that we've read and our own experiences, they're very, they do very well with conservative management or non-surgical yeah. treatment. And <laughs> surgery on that is typically a disaster. Um, mm. They, the recovery on that is is pretty intense. In that, um, they haven't really perfected it. No, they've wires and. Screws, yeah. yeah. It doesn't, you know. As one of our um, famous New York surgeons, which I won't mention, said, <laughs> you know, um, we try to do a good job, but the original parts are much better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's yeah. true, man. I, I I hate hearing this from patients, and it is no surprise to me that the patients who say this are being treated by a certain physical therapist. The body is so fragile, it's so weak, it's so inefficient. This is ACL tear or something like that. We should, it's so flawed. You know, we have such a flawed knee. Oh, yeah? Why, why don't you try to make a better? Yeah, like, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about? Like, uh, <coughs> we're the most efficient product of nature as possible. You know, yeah, we, we are. Brains. Yeah, and, and it, the fact that we get injuries is because, not because we have flaws. It's because we don't move the best that we can. We don't take care of ourselves the best that we can. Have you ever seen an Olympic run, Olympic, Olympian run, Olympian jump? I mean, these, that, those are things of beauty, and we could do incredible things. If, uh, if we put our mind to it, and, and our body, not just our mind. Exactly. Put our body under the stress. So those are the, the separation of that AC joint kind of sucks. Grade one through four. <laughs> um, why don't you talk about the roll, the roll of the rotator cuff muscle? What does it actually do, Lee? Oh my God, I misspelled that roll. Oh my, <laughs> the roll. I must have. Been oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know what I was thinking when I first Jesus. saw roll? I just thought joint mechanics. Oh no, I, was, I thought uh, I meant R O L E. It's all good. So the, this, I, I now I understand. <laughs> when, when I saw a force couple, I understood that. Yeah. Um, when so, I'm yeah. tired, I'll just mix things like. You know, I was probably thinking of jujitsu. No, I was going to say that. That's a jujitsu <laughs> term right there. I was like, thinking oh, yeah, of rolling. I'm roll right now. Um, 
So the, the role of the rotator cuff tendons uh, is very important. So there's four. So there's four rotator cuffs. And it's interesting. I, I, when we show a model to a patient, like a 3D model or like in the anatomy, which, which, uh, what's really good is a 3D model because you can really appreciate the thickness of a rotator cuff. Um, a lot of people, it, they seem to imagine like a thin tendon, four little thin tendons around the shoulders. It's not. The rotator cuff tendons are very, very uh, wide and thick, and they're very um, strong. That's all I could say. Uh, they, they basically wrap around the entire girdle or the uh, glenohumeral joint very well. And what they do, they're not necessarily primary movers of things. So, like, when we do traditional rotator cuff exercises, that's where we have to really isolate them and, like, lock up other things to have them strengthen. But when they're used in function, they work as a chain. And their chain, their role is to help the humeral head glide efficiency, efficiently. So if we didn't have the rotator cuff tendons at all, when you go to raise your arm, your head of your humerus would just kind of shoot up in the joint, and you, you probably wouldn't even get past 90 degrees. Right. You probably wouldn't even get past your shoulder line to raise your arm. It's because we can, again, this is efficiency. It, it, it's built so perfectly and intelligently where we can raise our arm up and over and have full range of motion over our head without looking like we're trying to hug our ears with our shoulder because of the rotator cuff tendons. Right. It, it uh, compresses <laughs> that joint. It has more of a compression. It compresses that uh, humeral head into the uh, the acetabulum, the glenoid. Wow. Jiu-jitsu brain. Uh, <laughs> The, yeah, so it comp- as Lee said, you know, it, it kind of stabilizes is what stabilizes. it does. <laughs> yeah, super important. And um, it's interesting. I, I've, I've talked about, I've posted about it at least on my Instagram account, how a lot of the current rotator cuff exercises that physio, physical therapists employ, I think they need to be revamped. I think they need to be reexamined because it, it's definitely been shown through functional uh, research when people do functional movement, it takes uh, they're undergoing quite a bit of stress, and they're able to contract uh, high velocities, and they have to control things like when someone, let's say a, a baseball pitcher, they will generate an incredible amount of force in the shoulder as a result of their mechanics from their hip, their trunk, um, their where they're looking, things like that. But on that same hand, the individuals who are stronger in the rotator cuff usually don't have as many injuries as people who are not as strong. So I, I, I'll use this as an example once again in my part-time gig. I see a lot of ro- <laughs> exhaustive rotator cuff exercises being done, and people aren't stimulated cognitively with them. So they'll be on their phone. Uh. They'll be they bit look like they're falling asleep. Their form will start to, to suffer, and they're, they're, they're totally negating the benefits of the exercise. I'd say, why don't you expand your mind uh, teach someone how to do an arm bar, teach someone how to hold the kettlebell in a rack position, teach someone how to hold the kettlebell over your head if you attain that range of motion, then you'll, you'll cognitively be engaged. You're not going to be on your phone. You're, you're going to be thinking about your breathing. You're going to be thinking about holding the grip. You're going to be thinking about all the things that you need to have that functional carryover to sport. I can give someone external rotations until they're blue in the face and give them 50 and say that, oh, the MG shows that I have the highest rate of supraspinatus activation in this position with this threshold of TheraBand. Does that really carry over to sport? Does, are, if, I, if I train somebody with that 
same injury, same weakness with all kettlebell exercise. You have someone else doing all TheraBand exercise, and we put them against each other and throwing or whatever. Do you think that you're going to have a superior outcome? I doubt it. I really yeah, doubt yeah, it. Yeah. And, I, I, and there's not research on it because our profession is yet to be proficient in those strength and conditioning aspects. Oh, and it's sad. The bridge, not to go too much on a tangent, but we have to bring this up. But the, tan- the 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 bridge between, I mean, as a trainer in the early two thousand two thousands, there was this whole um, medical exercise specialty that I, I took a course in, and um, they talked about this gap between physical therapy and and fitness, mm. and that gap still exists. I mean, it, it's closed down a bit. Mm. But um, and I really think it's it's the therapists that are, are a little further away from things than the strength and conditioning people 100%. at at the top of the food chain. So if you took, yeah. you know, top ten percent physical therapy therapists, and I guess how would you rate that? I'm not sure. Hmm. But then you take, uh, and you could even do financial success, right? You could hmm. say, which is horrible, yeah. but you take those, oh, no. you take those guys, hmm. and then you take the top ten of strength and conditioning guys. And there's going to be a, a world apart. Definitely. Um, I have a question for you with racking. Yeah. I love it. What if one doesn't have access to a kettlebell? Do you think a dumbbell produces... Can you rack a dumbbell with the similar principle? No. Okay. Because the way the bell sits on um, your shoulder or your arm while you hold it, it's literally pulling this perfect... Uh, everything's about gravity, by the right, way. Right. As a... You know, I'll go into my tangent in a second, but no, no, it's um, it pulls in such a way that you have to do this almost uppercut sensation, right? And then also wedge your uh, lat down, and then core breathing everything. And maybe if you're on one leg, you got a little cross pattern Ooh, there. Yeah, I mean, all of this good stuff. With a dumbbell, you're more likely to get pulled back like this with a, your wrist. And it, the only way I would say to do with a dumbbell is if it was small enough, not hitting your shoulder, is to hold it wider. So further away from your uh, clavicle, and you might get the same effect. Gravity, as a small tangent, success from exercise strengthening, it's it's our nervous system responds to gravity. Look at the astronauts who have prolonged amount of time up in space. They come back down. There's no surprise. They have muscle wasting. They have decreased bone mineral density. They have all these effects that are negative physically, to the body is because of lack of gravity. And they're doing the best they can up there with like treadmill walking and weighted things like that. But what, as a small tangent, the exercises that force you to change your mechanics against gravity, those are going to bring success and change and or add an element of competition. But those kettlebell training, barbell training, body weight training, those are the three key things. If you, even for rehab, that's going to get you better the most efficient way possible. And Doesn't want to say the <laughs> slogan. <laughs> they took that it. slogan. My brain went into overdrive oh. there. Don't you say it. <laughs> no, no, no. Got to burn that slogan as a no-no. Oh, God. Get better efficiently. Efficiently. I like that. <laughs> um, but in the sense of, um, and this is something that I learned from one of my early training managers. And mm. this is they were just training me to be a good personal trainer, and adequate salesperson, which is part of the training. He says, you have to ask yourself, are you showing this person something that they can do on their own? 
if the, if you are then they're not going to they're not going to need you and what i see in physical therapy with these rotator cuff exercises in particular they're doing these theraband exercises forever months they're just doing the same friggin' ones they're increasing the bands increasing the rips but the 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 mechanics of it never change why would they need you? They could just go home and look at a YouTube video, look in the mirror, and just check their form if they understand the basic mechanics. Now, that's fine. Sure, over uh, people doing exercise on their own, but give them something more involved, and that takes um, the knowledge of the body mechanics, the breathing, um, the exercise variation, the tools, which would be the kettlebell, barbell, and body weight, all that stuff. So that, that's going to get the neuro change. Give the, the neuro change, better carry over to sport. Okay. Get my, I would add to that. Get multiple. Get the rest of the body. Their shoulder may not be working as efficiently as possible, but mm-hmm. their glute is. Why not turn on that? Let's say if this is the right shoulder, why don't you get them to turn on that left glute? Uh, why mm-hmm. don't you get them to work on <sighs> stabilizing their other shoulder, which has a carryover effect? If you look at like strong first kind of methodology, of, oh, overflow. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a little irradiation kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, get as Lee's saying, getting people to you know I I'm definitely uh, guilty of these quote basic shoulder exercises, and the way I explain it initially is, hey, this is just a little hello. This is the kind of the area we're working. As time goes on, we're going to involve more of you mm-hmm. into strengthening your shoulder, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, get get other things. And as Lee, Lee said, if you're able to look at an email while performing an exercise, I, I don't believe it's an exercise. No. It's not, you know, it, it's... I, I agree with Eric. I, I'll, I'll it, especially uh, the first time we're working with a person, mm-hmm. there's so many things we have to cover, so many things we have to teach, so many things we have to review. So usually the complexity of the exercise is going to be saved for after a couple of sessions in the sense that like, all right, we're going to start here, get you to right. be more aware of this area, and then we're going to turn it up a little bit. And then also we have to assess, is this person going to be fearful of like the kettlebell? Like I've had a lot of people who don't want to use kettlebells at all because <laughs> they have an injury. They, 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 they perceive it as it will injure them because they've either been told it's a dangerous thing hmm. or they've had a bad experience, like a trauma. It's like or a trauma. It's like le- getting a new car. You throw the bell at them. <laughs> no, like, you got to use this bell. Well, that'll be, that'll be combative. That's combative. <laughs> Pick up the bell. Pick up the bell. I'm going to choke you. <laughs> you just tell them, if you don't want to use this bell, the session's over. As if we're done, I'm walking I'm away. I'm only going to charge you one and unit. And I drop the bell. <laughs> charge you one unit because I talk to you for 10 minutes and just leave. No, no. But, um, oh, shit. But no, the ki- I'm sorry. I, no, I just no, please, crazy. Man. <laughs> Crazy visual of you being like <laughs> kettlebells or <are> nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I try to use. I mean, that's the thing too. Is like the repertoire of exercise. I remember I posted something and my girlfriend's like, "How do you know all these exercises? Said, these aren't. First of all, these aren't my exercises. These are the things that I learned from other incredible people who have taken a lot of time you to research do it. This shit. You research this shit, man. And I'm I'm evolving my. We're involving ourselves with this. I every time we go to jujitsu, that's an experiment. That's oh, an experiment of movement, stress, everything. Every time I work out, every time I track my progress in working out, that's an experiment. I learn from that. I see what works for me. I test things out on people, and if it doesn't work, then scratch it for that person. But you know, I'm not one to say like, oh, it's going to work for me. You know, uh, this is going to be a fancy thing. I I do very simple. You know, we do very simple no, things with people. Pick things up, and drop yeah. them down. Yeah, that's all we do. 
<laughs> Sometimes they fly a little bit. We do a little swinging, but oh, otherwise man. they're going up and down <clears throat> against gravity. I gotta get these damn bells. You're making me want to. I'm gonna order some kettlebells right now. I've been, oh, yeah. I've been, um, well, probably spent about ten, twenty minutes in the last two months of researching kettlebell where to purchase. Leah's given me many resources. <laughs> um, the clinic that I'm currently renting space out of does not have kettlebells, but they're open to me purchasing them. Mm. And um, nice, yeah. I'm going to get on them this week. It's just, you know, we're trying to manage that overhead cost. <laughs> but it, it's, it's if anybody listening to this podcast is not familiar with kettlebells, um, Lee Man put me on, take a look at Strong first, take a course, mm-hmm. look at their links, look at, I mean, it's, it's really, um, I would say, like a life-changing thing it for is. anybody that kind of... Um, for anyone that dedicates the time necessary to kind of learn and practice and, and let your nervous system respond to it, mm-hmm. but it really, it's a game changer, whether it's a rehab, from a rehab perspective, from a performance steps perspective, um, any jujitsu players will know the benefits of uh, kettlebells mm-hmm. and grip and Anyway, a little bit of a tangent, but oh. that's all Lee, man. Uh, uh, Lee is a kettlebell specialist. <laughs> I would I would 100% recommend Strong First because I've, I've gone through the training. Um, also, what I feel an adequate alternative is RKC. Gotcha. Because they do kind of the same parameters. Um, you could find them a little less, I think, in terms of how frequent they're doing certs, but they're definitely equal. I, I've seen a lot of things that I've never heard of in terms of companies doing certs and, and watching, again, it's all on social media. I, don't, I haven't taken one of their courses, but a lot of their form is questionable mm. and they'll, they're will they doing things and if you t- were to take a strong force course would be a big no-no because of the risk of injury and or increased stress to an area. Um, and then it, they're all about efficiency. They're all about getting people stronger in the most efficient manner possible, and they're living examples. All of these instructors, uh, just to give you a quick note on it. <clears throat> Starting at the top of the food chain, we've got to start with that gentleman. Oh, Pavel, yeah. He, oh, he's, he's, he's a man. Listen to podcasts on Pavel. What's his last name? Tatsaluni. Tatsaluni. I'm sorry if I butchered it. Yeah, sorry. You go to Pavel Strong first. You, you'll see. He's incredible. Incredible guy. No BS. Straight to the point. And the whole concept of working... Working hard, we're working at about 70 to 80%. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of contradictory to the current um, high-intensity workouts that people are participating in recently mm-hmm. uh, in the last five years. Game changer. Yeah. Game changer. And I, I don't want to butcher it. I'm going to let no, Lee no, 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 I don't want to butcher it, but, but got the it, course. Yeah, yeah. So he – just a real quick thing on Pavel. He was – he's credited to bringing – the kettlebell movement over to the U.S. in the early 2000s. Now, my sister, Artemis, she's the one who got me into kettlebells. She's a high-level kettlebell instructor. She's now a team leader through uh, SFG. And to do that, you have to spend many years. It's, a, it's very like martial arts. Mm-hmm. You have to get ranked. You have to test out. You have to prove yourself over and over again. Um, she's also an Iron Maiden. She's one, she is the lightest Iron Maiden uh in the world, and if you don't know what Iron Maiden, the Iron Maiden challenge is, you can look it up. It's it's uh, synonymous with beast tamer for the males. It's uh, three lifts at a, with a certain weight, and you have to complete the lifts. But it's like a strong man. Does she does? Does she still do seminars? She does. She's doing one in Massachusetts, um, end of this month. I should connect her. 
Yeah. I should connect it with these um these <laughs> ladies. Yeah. Cuz it would be um Yeah, cuz I've been looking at Strong First about anything in New York. They're not here. Yeah. July I think is their next cert. Um, uh, Mr. Ryan Chow, he's doing it. Cool. Uh, so SFG though, right? SFG. Not not barbell. I was thinking thinking more of a user course. I'm not yeah, gonna. Yeah. I don't think I'm I'm ready for the. I should just five minutes snatch and see where I'm at. What do you need? A hundred? <laughs> yeah, man, do that. hundred. Yeah, good, good luck. And let you, me, need, you need my rotator cuff will be. <laughs> holy shit! You need 105 minutes, and then I think you have to use 24. 105 minutes. Oh, all right. 100 reps. All right, right, right. 100 reps minutes. in five minutes with yeah. a 24. With 24. Yeah. Uh, so probably good for 25. Oh, I, mean, I would I would recommend is is like there's, there's a workout online I think it was by Brett Jones to help you prepare for the the snatch test. You set ten minutes aside. You can just do five and five or three and three every minute on the minute, and then you can get an idea what it's like over time, just how it feels. And then if you're good with three and three, they, I think he starts sixteen or fifteen minutes three and three, and then after you do that success, successfully for a certain amount of time, bump it down to ten minutes five and five. Bump it down to eight minutes, eight and eight, so on and so forth, and you finally get down to five minutes, and you ended up doing a hundred. Um, that's how I did it the first time around, and that was tough for me because I'm a light individual, and um, the twenty-four was heavy. They, they somewhat changed the the weight classes now, but so w- with Pavel, credited with bringing the kettlebells over, but with what you're talking about, the parameters for working out and getting stronger, why it's new to us is because the Russians they've been doing this. For such a long time. I remember when I was an undergrad at University of Colorado Boulder, and our exercise physiology teacher used to talk about this. He would translate Russian research articles, and he said to himself, this was back in 1999, 2000, he would say, they're the most advanced when it comes to programming. They've had the most time and they were able to play around with some other things, but I won't won't get into that because it's very controversial. But um, they they in terms of their strength athletes, Olympic weightlifting athletes, and they applied it to their military. And kettlebells were originally made for the military. Oh. So the military, special forces, mainly the military, wanted something with them. This is insane to think about. They wanted to bring the gym with them while they were on nice. a mission. Nice. So nice. imagine a group of military individuals bringing kettlebells with them so they can work out Along and stay food, strong. food, bullets, grenades, yeah. and a kettlebell. Even carrying around one of the smallest kettlebells, which would be the 8 kilo, 18 pounds, walking around the gym with it, I I can't imagine walking miles with that thing, put it in your pack, never mind a 24 kilo or 32. That's the standard, the 24, right? 24 is a standard for the male, 16 is a standard for the female. Nuts. So uh, that, that's traditional old school Russian training. So old school training, how it used to be, was 10 minutes. Everyone did 10 minutes snatch test. And all the males, no matter your size, would be 24 kilos. So if you weighed 110 pounds. 10 you, minutes of snatches. 10 minutes snatches, you had to complete 200, sway, uh, 200 snatches. No matter what. That's like the old school. And uh, you had to use double 24s for everything. And the females all had to use 16. Same thing, 10 minutes. And that's the other thing I, I love about it. Females and males, they were up to the same standard. The weight differences were different. Right, scaled for weight. Scaled for weight. But they had to do the same shit. And right, right. that's 
you know, we, we I was a little ramped up because we watched G.I. Jane when I was at my parents' house. And I was like, oh, this is way ahead of its time. And Demi Moore doing one-arm push-ups, freaking came up with the guys. It was just such a cool movie. But um, That's before the whole military shift. Yeah, way Iraq. before. That was like in the 90s. That was like way ahead of its time. Probably. There was probably a, an un, some kind of movement, I'm assuming. Who knows? I think so. That's um, pretty damn cool, man. The, it's cool. I, I, and that's what is bringing success to people who do these courses is that the principles are there. They've been tested out. They've been tested on more people than anyone could ever imagine. Well, they were big on data. That was my understanding. 100%. So the data was taken from, you know, people would be sent. If you were an athlete or in the military, you'd be in barracks and they would they would – what was that? Or a citizen. Yeah, or just a plain Yeah, exactly. They're going to take you, your numbers. Take your numbers. They're going to say, hey, just start swinging this bell. <laughs> Look in the camera. You're on tape. But they they they're an extre- they extreme. They got they got the data down. So yeah. strength and conditioning out of Russia. You know, yeah. They, they've, yeah, I don't want to go into the other stuff. But even with the other stuff, mm. irregardless, that wouldn't change the fact that they put the training in. Right? They put the training. They got the results. If any if anyone questions it, you, you just have to try yourself. I mean, that, that's the thing. A lot of people, the research that's out now, if you were to do a quick um, search for researching kettlebells, you're not going to get anything um, significant in the sense that you watch, like, I, the most significant one I saw is they had a, a novice doing kettlebell swings and snatches. If you watch him, if you watch the video or the pictures of the, of the swings, they look terrible. So, mm. There's only Pavel in the research right now doing it. And, you know, it, it's good to have that information, but it would be better if you have someone who went through the training as a novice and they have several months of it from an expert and then they have good form and then you could test out muscle activity, strength gains, things like that. Then you have experts, you have a group of experts, you have to have, you know, a lot of um, participants that have a significant. How close number. are they to that? I mean, do you think um, it would be smart for them to make that? connection because right now they i think they're connecting with a different demographic that's a you know, good question fitness military even jujitsu fighters are, are, are hip to it um, I, I suspect that they're it's in the works but i you know i i'm i'm not close to anybody who's doing research right, right, right. i suspect that people are doing it right now we might hear about it in a couple of years but um the only guy i know right now who's on both ends, right. he does research. And he's a kettlebell guy. Is they call him the kettlebell physio. Again, he's out in the UK. He's not in the United States, mm. and he he posts a lot about kettlebells. Um, but I I really wish you know there were more in you uh, know from the US people excited about this being able to put together research. But there isn't. There are just a lot of people focusing on the wrong things and. I think it will get expanded. Like we said, it's changing, right. but it's coming slow. Yeah, think of it. I mean, even CrossFit classes, hmm. you know, if they've incorporated, I mean, the American swing should be banned, but... Um, <laughs> There's a funny story about that, by the way. The American, yeah. That's technically... This is what I hear. I, I It's not confirmed, but that is technically the Russian swing. They used to do that over in Russia, but when they came over and they started showing the Americans, guess who didn't have the thoracic mobility to do it safely? Were the Americans? <laughs> they started to get hurt like crazy. So everyone got like shoulder tears, and they're like, "Oh, okay, well, this, just to show the level." Then these <laughs> <laughs> little bitches. Nah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You you're not going to do these things. The thoracic mobility, anything, yeah. any mobility. Yeah, but I do. I am a firm believer. I've I've done both, and I am a firm believer of the shoulder level. There's too much of a benefit with that 
versus the risk of going overhead. And scratching it up. Yeah. We might have to revisit the shoulder. I know, yeah. The next, this is good. We haven't this even is, talked about clicking and popping. We, we, um, <laughs> we're going to have to revisit the shoulder next week. Um, we will go back until the roll. <laughs> we're going to go to the roll of, of the joints, <laughs> the labral. We, we haven't even discussed neck muscles. We haven't discussed uh, differentiating uh, shoulder pain from a potential neck injury. Uh, injury. Mm. Um, we went over the misinformation of the dislocation yeah um position of compromise plenty of those in jujitsu but we haven't gone <laughs> over that um and we haven't gone over surgeries we partially went over some surgeries so we will revisit we're gonna have a hybrid session next week i think we'll do yeah and we might have a guest i'm, tr- I'm trying to confirm with uh former patient oh very cool yeah that's gonna be that that'll be good so yeah. He'll get to listen to this, some of this, and maybe he could discuss his own journey. Right. We would love that. All right, signing All right. off. Thanks for listening. Signing off. Thank you for listening to A Few Good Physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 